Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast from The Times with me, Matt Chorley, featuring the best of my Times radio show, which you can listen to Monday to Friday, 10 till 1. Today, I was joined by an absolute legend, actual David Dimbleby. Uh, one of the things I asked him about is how to get through an election night programme. I'm hosting the overnight programme for the US elections, 1 till 6am, uh, and he gave me advice on how to get through that. But we need your help. We know we've got thousands of listeners to this podcast in America. If you are in America and you want to come on the show, we want to try and find a listener in every US state. So email me matt.chorley at times.radio and we can get you on the election night programme uh, on November the 3rd. Anyway, quite enough of that. Let's talk to David Dimbleby. Now, forget the politicians, the former prime ministers and so on that we sometimes let onto the show. They come and go. But my next guest is frankly a permanent fixture of the Constitution. David Dimbleby has been the voice of 10 British general elections, countless local European and US presidential elections, 25 years of question time, and of course a referendum or two. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. Well, not just politics, but moments of national joy and grief too. Remembrance Sunday, royal weddings, funerals and jubilees and whatever else. And now he's reinvented himself as an annoyingly good podcaster. And he joins me now. Good morning, David. Morning, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Is, is there nothing you can't turn your hand to? <laughs> That's, well, you describe my life in broadcasting in a very flattering way. But the truth is, uh, I, I suppose I started broadcasting when I was 11, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, it's was, was, this because, I, was this because you, of your dad? You, you, you were yeah, dragged into it young. Yeah, I was. I did. I tell you what I did. I did... Um, an edition of Family Favourites, uh, which was a re- record request programme. And I remember it really well because I was, it was on Boxing Day and I was driven up to London by my dad and somebody else had dropped out. That's the way of my life. People drop out and I take over. But anyway, <laughs> I went and did it. And I remember the most cringing bit. One of the cards I had to read out was from somebody who was asking for my very good friend, The Milkman by Fats Waller, and said, I think I am blind. And I was an 11-year-old, and I, was given, I had this card in front of me, and I just blurted out, I'm sorry you're blind, but I'm afraid there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> because I think I thought, you know, the BBC, it can do anything. <laughs> but you can't so do anything crazy, about that. It's just lived with me, that awful remark all my life. Do you, think that's anyway. the wor- do you think that's the worst thing that's ever happened to you on air? No, the worst thing was drying up completely when I did my first um, big uh, sort of... When Panorama was off the air, I did a thing called Outlook Europe. And I did a thing which is... Oh, goodness, it's so... Yeah, I, I, I'd written a script for myself. We didn't have autocue in those days. And it was Macmillan I was talking about. And I said, the Prime Minister... And I'd written a line that went on the one hand and on the other. And it, on the one hand, he could send so, and on the other... And I can clean, clean forgot what the other hand was. And I simply <laughs> dried up. There's, I mean, normally mistakes in broadcasting are fine. I've had panoramas where everything goes down. It's fine. Elections are terrific. You know, things go wrong all the time. And you know the viewers on your side if things go wrong. You know, as long as you do your best, it's okay. But no, those are the two ones I remember best, I think. Or worst, I suppose, would be a better way of putting it. But broadcasting, I just enjoy you know, I just, I don't know why, I just enjoy broadcasting and podcasting, This the fault line we've been doing um, with Something Else Productions, with Joe Sykes, the producer, has been absolutely fascinating. We did the Sun King, first of all, which was about Rupert Murdoch, uh, your stable, 
Yes, and, of course, um, the boss. That went the boss. Down. <laughs> and and I, I just like the, the it's a change of, of pace because in podcasting you are much more sort of listening to people, seeking you're not it's not you don't interview people on podcasts in, in, in the ones I've done. It's not an interview process. It's getting them to reflect on things that are five, ten, in this case, seventeen years ago. And I find they're they they're very forthcoming. And interesting. And if you do a lot of it, you can piece together a picture, in this case, of what the run up to the war in Iraq was like. And um, it's just a different way of talking. It's more, you know, you're talking into somebody's ear, really, and you have to change the whole pitch of your voice and the way you do it. And I don't know, I just find it fascinating. I mean, I just... Because I just enjoy talking. <laughs> and why, like you, like you. Exactly, Rob. You've got to. You've got three hours to fill. You're just going to keep talking. Um, what, why did you choose um, uh, the Iraq war then? It's called, so it's called the Fault Line, Blair, Bush and Iraq. And it looks at what, how and why the invasion took place. Uh, what, why did you pick that as a topic for a podcast series? Um, because I think the crude version of what happened, um, Blair, the war criminal and all that, was far too crude as a description of how we got in to the war in Iraq. And that what was really interesting was how there were a whole series of events between 9-11 and the actual invasion of Iraq that could have suggested that they were on the wrong track about weapons of mass destruction. Um, but they were constantly ignored, both by the American administration and by Blair, um, and there's a strange, there's a strange connection between the two. I mean, George W. Bush. Remember, America had a, a long-standing policy of regime change in Iraq. We didn't. Regime change in Iraq is illegal by British law. So you, but Tony Blair has this sort of slightly messianic view about the role of democracies in exporting democracy and changing dictatorships, which was reinforced by uh, Kosovo and by Sierra Leone, which had been a success and he'd been hailed as a hero. And I think he had this view that when the moment was right, uh, you, you had to do your best to change the world for the better. He made a great speech in Chicago under Clinton when Clinton was president. He was already prime minister, of course. And I think he had this... this um, I, in, a, in a way, a kind of idealism about it. And then 9-11 happens and he offers his support to George W. Bush. But the Bush administration is, is divided. There's part of it. Uh, people like um, Karl Rove and Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz who actually believe that it's the duty of America to go in and get rid of Saddam and to use 9-11 as the reason to do that, even though there's scant evidence that, indeed, no evidence. Only, if, well, in this episode, we show that there was a sort of purported evidence that Saddam had been training al-Qaeda, but it was rubbish. He hadn't been. Um, and that they should use the moment to unseat Saddam, and that would make the world a better place. And Bush and Blair kind of gets drawn into this argument, saying, we'll, we'll support you, but then is aware that he can't, even though he says, I'm with you, whatever, in one famous memorandum, uh, that actually, from the point of view of Britain and the Labour Party, that's not enough. You can't just say we want to get rid of Saddam, and indeed it would be illegal, and therefore you have to have a proper reason. And the reason 
is Saddam's failure, and this is the linchpin, to get rid of his weapons of mass destruction. So um, what happens is uh, that Blair persuades Bush that you need a new resolution at the United Nations to allow inspectors in. And if Saddam has weapons of mass destruction and won't get rid of them, then there's a cause for war and you can go in and that will satisfy Bush's aim and the neocons aim to get rid of the regime. But at the same time, it will satisfy the British parliament and people that they're doing the right thing because this man is famously in 45 minutes can attack London, which is what the headline in the Evening Standard said. Um, and so they go for that. But what emerges all the time is actually, and it's coming through during this whole time, that nobody can find any weapons of mass destruction. And as we know, in the end, it emerged there were none. And Blair says in the podcast, when I asked him, what, what did you feel when you realized there were none? And he said, I felt very angry. Interesting word. He felt angry because he'd used that as the casus belli, and it had turned out to be phony, false. But the key thing is that all during this 18 months, information was being fed to the American administration and to our intelligence by sources who turn out to be, uh, on the one hand, fake, who are making money out of saying uh, that there's weapons of mass destruction, we know where they are and all that. Um, and on the other hand, people coming and saying, look, we don't think he's got them. We think he got rid of his weapons after the first Gulf War in Kuwait, after he was thrown out of Kuwait and the inspectors went in and we think he got rid of all his weapons. So we don't actually think he has any. And there are, there are, uh, there's one particular key witness. It's a fascinating story. The Iraqi foreign minister, Chalabi, oh, yeah. wanted to, wanted to, uh, wanted to um, quit Iraq to flee uh, because he wanted to become president, of course. And he had information that there were no weapons of mass destruction. And uh, they had contacts with him, but they were ignored. The CIA said to the White House, uh, we've got information that from this very high source that there are no weapons of mass destruction. So and they took no notice because like a steamroller, they were, you know, they were going on. They focused so, on sorry, the information that they wanted. That, but that's, a, what? They, they, they basically focused on the information they wanted that bolstered their case and they ignored and, and looked the other way. Yes. But yeah. Well, I, they focused on the information they wanted and in, and certainly kind of, I don't know whether ignored is the right way to put it. I mean, in, in London terms, our intelligence agencies had a kind of fairly modulated view about weapons of mass destruction. You remember the famous argument about whether the dossier was sexed up or not. Uh, and uh, and uh, Blair had written an introduction to it that was slightly more, well, considerably more um, positive about WMD than the reports coming in from intelligence. So they went back to the intelligence sources, uh, you know, the head of, of John Scarlett and said, you know, could you find a way of just slightly, you know, perhaps um, making this clearer or something? Uh, in other words, they were looking for, always looking for justification for a course that Blair by then was pretty well committed to. Yeah. I'm with you, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. And it's not the blunt story about Blair, the war criminal. It's about how when you set out on a political course and you decide it's the right thing to do. And in Blair's case, 
from a high moral standpoint in his own mind. Yeah. You can get sucked into something and find it very, very difficult to withdraw. I mean, he could have withdrawn. And remember, Bush said, if this is too difficult for you, don't do it. The Bush didn't need Britain, but he, Blair needed to be with America because that was his view that, you know, there was a special relationship, that we were democracies, that we stood together. And, you know, if there was sufficient evidence and just about, about WMD, then we would stand with America come what may. And as a result, we sent 45,000 troops in. You can get more of the latest political news with a subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I want to talk to you about um, public trust because lots of people in particular attribute, we heard the clip of you announcing the result of the Brexit referendum. They attribute that to a sort of collapse in public trust in institutions, which goes back through, you know, we had the financial crisis, we had the MPs' expenses uh, scandal. Do you think that that erosion of trust began with Iraq? Um, I think it was a very big contributing factor. I think to have your Prime Minister go to war with a huge majority in the House of Commons who'd been persuaded that Saddam was an imminent threat to go to war and then to discover that the reason for going to war just wasn't there, that there just were no weapons. I think that did, yes, was hugely, hugely damaging. Uh, Of course, as you say, there are other things. I mean, the expenses scandal was very damaging. We've been deceived by our politicians before. Anthony Eden deceived us over the invasion of the Suez Canal in 1956, you know, and said that it was an independent thing of the French and the British. And it turns out it was in collusion with Israel. You know, that there, are, there are always moments of deception. But I think it, it, it combines with a kind of, it, it's odd, it combines with a kind of feeling that the political system and politicians belong to us much more than I think people used to feel. I think there used to kind of be a feeling that the politicians were on the whole, you know, you didn't quite understand why they did it or who they were, but they were sort of decent people who got on with it. 
and you got on with your life, you know. And in moments of crisis, like the Second World War, you turn to them and Atley comes in, you get the National Health Service, that's good. You know, on the whole, they're working in, in your favour. And I don't know whether it's because of the increasing sort of use of media probably has a part to play in it and uh, and people having much more of a voice than they used to have indeed you mentioned question time you know that was a place where week after week after week people could go on and have their say people felt that they deserved to be empowered more than just by a five-year general election and therefore they could demand more of their politicians and therefore, when their politicians failed to deliver, the expenses scandal being a very, very good example of it, that they just didn't, you know, the expenses scandal, they just didn't understand what these politicians were doing who appeared to be lining their pockets. And that was it actually on a very small scale and with the connivance, apparently, of the expenses office in the House of Commons. And that, was, that, that, may, that was I a pretty explosive moment, wasn't it, on Question Time, when, when in, the, in the days after the expenses scandal broke? I remember they, they, they sort of really stick in my mind as episodes of Question Time, which just sort of um, exploded. And, and yes. Do you think people became... There was, one, there was one particular one. I remember a particular one, Margaret Beckett. I think we were in Grimsby. <clears throat> and um, there were two women in the front row, very, very angry. And one of the things on her expenses um, claim had been flower baskets to decorate the front of her house uh, in her constituency or something like that. I must be careful. I think that what, what, what it was. Anyway, and it was a small sum of money. And the, two, the one of the women said, and are you going to give it back, the money, that is? And she bridled and slightly blushed and said, no. Because in her view, what she'd done was perfectly right. And the audience just erupted with fury. I mean, it was just extraordinary. And those audiences are, are powerful, uh, have a powerful effect because they, they're a sort of test. That's why it's so sad at the moment we can't get the Question Time audiences together because of COVID. I mean, I remember when John Major was in his sort of, in the, in the worst part, just before he lost the election, and all our audiences were against major and the government and we'd have conservative ministers on and they'd say this is a you know the usual thing oh this is biased and then they'd listen to the audience and afterwards over supper they'd say you know the terrifying thing is it's not biased is it the tories have turned against us as well as labor you just couldn't find so anyone I think it's who powerful, be, yeah that kind of impact and so that's the audiences and what you learned from the audiences. What about the panellists? Who do you think were the best and worst guests that you had on, on, the, <laughs> on the... Who was particularly okay. good at doing it, first of all? Well, the good ones are the brave ones who speak their mind. And I, from three parties, I would list Tony Benn as one. Um, I'd list Shirley Williams as another, Voices from the Past. <laughs> and um, Michael Heseltine, Kenneth yeah. Clark, always good. I mean, the politicians of stature, what I would call politicians who understand that one of the jobs of a politician is to engage with ideas and argue with people. Uh, they, were, they were the good ones. And the, the thing that was so depressing over in, in recent years, I think, was this feeling that uh, politicians are being told by their press advisors to quote, there's nothing in it for you going on question time, as though somehow the cosmetic was all that mattered and forgetting that actually what matters is that the politicians are responsible to us 
and should come on, come what may, and argue the toss, because that's the job of a politician. You can't hide, you know, you can't just hide away. <laughs> like all these things of, you know, Boris Johnson not appearing on the BBC during the last election, refusing to do interviews with Andrew Neil, all that stuff. I just think that's, that's a kind of arrogance among politicians. I mean, I do understand why their advisors <laughs> say there's nothing in it for you to be monstered by Andrew Neil. But actually, if you're a politician, you should be able to be and hold your corner being monstered by Andrew Neil. You know, he's not the devil incarnate. He's just a persistent interviewer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I think that the, um, the that cosmetic side of politics, this sort of pussyfooting around the issues, not going on unless you feel it's, you know, you've got something going for you is 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 damaging, actually, to our democracy. I should boy, well, a- Andrew Neil's going to be on Times Radio in a couple of weeks, sitting in for, for John Pienaar. So we, should, we ought to have that on the posters. He's not the devil incarnate. He's just a good interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> he'd resent that. <laughs> yeah, he'd. <laughs> do, do you? What uh, do you mean? I'm not the devil incarnate. People, people say, "Oh, this is the worst cabinet we've ever had. It's all low caliber. You know, there's no big beast left." Is that something that people have always said, or do you think that this is particularly true of this particular cabinet? I think it's. I think it's more true of this particular cabinet. Um, Yes, uh, I think it's something that people have always said. People have always said ministers are useless, haven't they? I mean, unless they're on your side. So uh, opposition has always said, you know, it doesn't know, it doesn't know his ass from his elbow. You know, I mean, I, I think that is kind of endemic. But I do think this one. I mean, you'd know better than me, Matt, because you're closer to it than I am now. But I, 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 I think it is true. One, there are one or two people who stand out, obviously, um, Chancellor being the most obvious example. And there are one or two who clearly are not quite up to the job. But, uh, and, and of course, there was, a, there was an error made, wasn't there, a beginning by, by Johnson of only choosing um, fervent Brexiteers, which limited the, the gene pool. <laughs> and that damagingly, I think. And who, who do you think is particularly um, hopeless? Not going to say. <laughs> it was worth asking the question. Which actually, this is one of the things I wanted to ask, because you've done so many um, uh, one-on-one interviews as well. Um, what's the best interview question? What? Is there a particular question that is to ask a politician which either sort of wrong-foots them or gets them to open up? or what, what's, the, what's the best sort of question? No, no. No, there's no particular question. I mean... There's a predictability about the answers you get. That's the first thing. And so you have to be fleet of foot to work out how to take the argument on. I mean, Robin Day had a, <laughs> Robin Day, a great political interviewer, the, for my money, the best political interviewer and, and, the, and actually the founder of political interviewing. Really. Robin Day <laughs> used to say that he'd ask the prime minister, his opening question would be, what's your answer to my first question? because <laughs> that's just what, and, um, they're going to say it regardless of what you ask well you do, yeah exactly you get a predictable answer whatever you got but i think the thing is uh i mean my everybody has a different style of political interviewing you know and, and mine with margaret thatcher for instance was to um i mean yeah how can i put this people have when i was doing political interviewing at number 10 for panorama once a year we do the prime minister um and um Walden was doing uh, a weekend show as well. Now, he was very kind of, he had a kind of great chart of where the questions should be, and it was very sort of analytical, and, and it did work quite well. Mine is much more to listen very carefully and then say, really? And why, <laughs> you know, why do you think that? And, I, and that, that works uh, too. And then other people are aggressive, which I'm 
not by nature, and and that works as well. I mean, but my my take. I remember my best. I think my my best moment in using that technique was with Margaret Thatcher just before an election when she said, "We were talking. We were talking about um, society general or something," and she said, "I can't bear people who drool and drivel about caring." And I thought, "What?" And I just <laughs> said, "I didn't. I didn't say you know that's outrageous thing." She said, "I said drool and driveling." And there's a pause. Said, "I'm sorry, Mr. Dimbleby, I shouldn't have said that." And then at the end of the interview, this was just on election eve. I said, "Have you learnt anything from your campaigning during this election?" She said, "I've learnt something from you today, Mr. Dimbleby. It's not enough just to say you care. You have to show you care." And I felt, "Oh, right, there wow. we go." <laughs> from the Iron Lady, that's but- quite quite the turnaround. Well, it was, it was, but you know, she equally, she was a difficult, always a very difficult interviewee. I mean, she'd, she would throw, you know, all, all, all political, all politicians, I think, suddenly throw uh, confetti in your face to put you off the, off the trail. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you ask a question and they go off and answer something else, knowing that you've only got, uh, one of the things is knowing you've only got limited time. I mean, the joy of the podcast, the joy uh, of the fault line. Um, is that you, I mean, for instance, Tony Blair, um, who features right through it, but I talked to him in all for an hour and three quarters. Now, you would never get an hour and three quarters with Tony Blair on television or on radio. Um, you get it because it's a conversation. He knows it's going to be edited. Uh, it's not done under lights, you know, with camera crew and sound crew and all that. So it's not like a performance quite the same way. And it's... It's a it's a lovely, slightly insidious way of kind of getting under the skin the the podcast. That's what I enjoy about it. So when you started by saying, "Do I like broadcasting?" I do love it, and I I love this new this new form of it, and I'm I'm hope to go on doing it really because there's a lot of material out there. I mean, I'm interested in, for instance, the Good Friday Agreement might be one where you just go back and talk to people about what actually happened. When did you think it was going well? When was it going badly? All that. With time, people will talk about it. I was going to say that you need that distance to be able to look back. You know, it's too soon to do. Yes. Out of, out of the fray, no longer, no longer in the fray. Uh, Still, of course, defending their point of view, still explaining, but explaining in a more subtle way and explaining in a kind of modulated way, why they reached the decisions they did. Not being asked to apologize not being asked to say I did it wrong, but just to explain why they did it the way they did. And that's what the fault line is about. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, because uh, reading the papers over the weekend, there was lots of talks of MBEs and damehoods and knighthoods and, and so on. And knowing you were coming on, I thought, why why is it not Sir David Dimbleby? <laughs> I, I'll tell you exactly why it's not. Um, regardless of whether I've been offered one or not, I've always said publicly, I don't think political journalists or broadcasters should take any honour that comes through Downing Street, because it's tainted. If it comes through Downing Street, it means the Prime Minister's approved it. And, you know, I just think people think, well, so maybe he was pulling his punches to get a knighthood. No? I've always publicly said I would never take any honour of any kind. And as a result, of course, 
I've never been offered. Nobody's one. ever offered you one. That seems fair enough. Um, that seems fair enough. Um, I wanted to uh, 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 in a what was it a couple of weeks now the U.S. presidential election. Uh, I'm doing for the first time the overnight uh, results show here on Times Radio. What, oh, lucky you! What yeah. advice have you got to basically stay awake, keep tabs on everything, to cram all of the swings and key states in my mind? What what tips have you got for getting through election night? Uh, just spend from now till election night learning every single state and every, you know, all the key issues in every state, because in the end it comes down to that and people forget that. Uh, that's the thing. On the physical side, nothing at all. Adrenaline will keep you going, Matt. Don't no worry about that. Fantastic. It's exciting. But the more you know about it, the more you know about it, um, the more you've sort of boned up on it. That's obvious advice, isn't it? Um, and, and, oh, I know, I know the other thing is, um, it, it's, an in, it's an odd thing to say, but remember that it's a big story. So don't get bogged down by the detail of Florida. You know. <laughs> There's a big <laughs> you know picture I mean. to focus don't, on. Don't yeah, yeah, say, yeah. oh, Iowa, that's really interesting. It is interesting, but actually the bigger story is who's going to be president and you have to keep that in mind all the time. So it's a drama told through minutiae. I've, I've made a good list there. I've written all that down. <laughs> <laughs> Take no notice of it. And I just need to finally ask you, uh, because uh, yes. my wife was very keen that I did. Are you are you going to do Strictly Come Dancing? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I've never been asked to. You've never been offered I... a knighthood and you've never been offered Strictly. Somebody, somebody needs to put these two things right. I know. How can a man go to his grave without either of those things? Well, I will happily do so. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>